0: Well, good morning. My name is Scott Zeller. I serve as a pastor in Dubai, United Arab Emirates for Redeemer Church of Dubai. It's my joy to share God's Word with you this morning. But before I do that, just a word of thanks. Uh, Thank you so much to the elders of Community Bible Chapel for the the joy and the privilege of bringing God's Word to you today. Uh, CBC holds a very dear place in my heart. Uh, Even now, as I sit here uh, in my basement here in Dubai, uh, in the middle of the Middle East, uh, in the middle of the 1040 window, I don't know if you can even hear it, but uh, just as I hit record, uh, the call to prayer started outside, and so you might hear some of that coming through my microphone here in an Islamic kingdom, um, where the Lord has privileged me with the opportunity to minister. I still look back, uh, coming on 20 years ago now, uh, from when I left for university, uh, in California, and where I left from was from CBC, uh, having spent uh, a lot, a lot of my my childhood and certainly my youth uh, there at CBC, learning from uh, men like Charlie Raymond and from Lee Crandall and from Ray Led, from Lenny Carell and from all the guys uh, there at the church, uh, seen faithful preaching by Pastor Bob and others. Uh, it's just such a rich memory. Uh, was baptized uh, in your church. Uh, grew in my knowledge and understanding of God's Word in your church, uh, and I deeply love and appreciate the ministry of CBC. But like I said, it's been many, many years since uh, I, the Lord took me both on to college, university, and then to further ministry uh, from there, and He has placed us now here in Dubai. Uh, and the elders asked me just to give a quick update on what we're up to here And so Redeemer Church of Dubai is uh, doing well even amidst this pandemic, by God's grace. Uh, We were in some of the strictest lockdown measures in the world early on in the year, uh, and those have eased up a little bit. We're still not allowed to meet publicly for worship, and so that would really be our primary prayer request uh, that I would pass across to you, is that there would be a way made where we could gather for worship. We uh, obviously see that as so critical to the life of a church, that the congregation congregates, that we, we get together and that we spend time uh, together around God's Word and in worship uh, before Him. Uh, our church is made up of dozens and dozens of nationalities, which reflects this city of Dubai that's a, a crossroads of this part of the world. Uh, we, we seek to raise up people from this region uh, to do gospel ministry in this region. In the region, it includes the Middle East for sure. That's where we are sort of based, um, so to speak. But uh, our church is about 80 to 90% African and Asian from all different uh, nationalities. And so uh, from Nigeria uh, to Nepal uh, and onwards, there are folks here that are hearing the gospel. Uh, they come to Dubai for work. They come to Dubai because they can make a little bit more money than they could have back home, perhaps, uh, have an opportunity to get something on their, their resume or their CV working here in this uh, remarkable city. Uh, but what we hope to give them the opportunity to do is not just put something on their resume, uh, but make the relationship right with the Lord through the gospel. And then we're by God's grace, we're seeing that happen, uh, seeing people come to faith, grow in their knowledge of, of, of the Word and of discipleship and then be ready to lead in the ministry and to initiate it, to make disciples themselves here in the city and then wherever the Lord might take them next. So it's an exciting ministry. Um, my wife, Angela, is, is, is with me here. We have four kids uh, and they're great. I wish you could see them and meet them. And, th- and this, by the way, this I'm seeing this, uh, this Texas flag here. That's not just a flex for you guys. Um, I actually, again, do deeply love the state of Texas and uh, I deeply love that you are there as CBC. So thank you for your gospel ministry there in Texas. Well, let's jump into to God's Word. We're going to be looking today uh, in this video in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking specifically at, um, chap- or at verse 20 to 21, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and read from 14 to 21. And so if you've got a Bible, you could, you could read along with me because uh, we're going to be looking at these verses together. So Ephesians chapter 3. What is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God? And now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen well like i said we're looking at verses 20 to 21 uh, for this video but if i had time i really wish we could have also looked at 14 to 19. in those rich verses from 14 to 19 we saw how paul the apostle the church planting gospel advancing apostle uh, he was reporting to the church what he prayed for that young church and what he praying for, what he was praying for was he was praying specifically for the spiritual good of the Ephesian believers. He was letting them in on how he prays for them, how, how he would pray that they'd be strong and loving and unified disciples, strengthened in their inner being, rooted and grounded in love, and together with all of the saints being filled up with God's fullness as they experience the love of Christ. What an amazing prayer. What an amazing prospect to be that kind of a church that would be unshakable and undivided and unhindered in fulfilling God's plan for this world. And and that's the kind of church I think that that Richardson needs. So does Rome, so does Riyadh, so does Rangoon. These are the kind of churches that we need throughout the world, the kind that we heard Paul praying about. And later in Ephesians, chapter 4 onwards, Paul's going to jump into practical teaching on what that could look like how a unified church functions, and and what the new life in Christ looks like for husbands and wives and parents and children, servants and masters, how how all can follow Jesus. But in our verses today, 20 and 21, Paul's not quite there yet. He's not on to the teaching of implications of these truths yet. In our verses today, Paul's concluding his prayer report, and he's drawing to conclusion that the first three chapters of Ephesians and he's doing that through an outpouring of praise, a doxology. A doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which is translated as glory. So a doxology is a giving of glory, a pronouncement of praise or worship. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's giving glory to God. And he's doing so, and as he does, he's helping us to see a few things about our God and in our lives in this world. So as we move through uh, these verses in this video, I want us to see three things, three headlines for our our look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. First is a lifestyle of worship. Second, a lifetime of witness. And third, a life without end. So first, uh, a lifestyle of worship. As we said, Paul's closing the first three chapters of theologically rich uh, prayer. And he's doing that in a doxology, this worshipful exclamation point to everything he said so far in the first three chapters. And having just invited us in 14 to 19 to imagine what it'd be like to be filled up with the fullness of Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, Paul now bursts out with praise. He begins his worship uh, in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think. Well, first we should ask, To who? To him. It's to God. It's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one God. He is God. That's who Paul's praying to, and that's what he focuses on here, is that that he is God and he is able. Maybe the Ephesians were were tempted to think that God wasn't able to follow through on that offer to strengthen them in their inner being, to ground them in, uh, in love. Maybe were you tempted this last week, to think that your situation was too dire, your sin was too great, or did you wonder if your prayers were too ambitious, your, your goals for the gospel too bold? No. Paul's reminding them, he's reminding us, that God is more than able. Something of the force of what Paul's saying can be felt by hearing it this way. The, the basic gist of what Paul is saying is that God is able to do what the believers ask in prayer. But Paul isn't just saying, uh, he's not just praying God for that, although that would be enough. He wants us to feel the wonder. So he lays on the emphasis. Paul says God is not only able to do what they ask, but he's able to do what they might fail to ask. Uh, But just think, have you ever done that? When you thought about something, you had an ambition, a sin you hoped to overcome, a person you wanted to reach for Christ, a sickness or a disability that you long to be healed. You just thought it was too much to even ask for. Well, Paul is saying God's able to do more than we ask and more than we think. He's able to do all that they ask or think. He's able to do far more than all they ask or think. He's able to do far more abundantly than they ask or think. Who is God? Who is our God? He is the God who's able. That's what Paul is directing his prayer towards here, his worship Those things that Paul's praying for, as bold as they were in those earlier verses, they don't even come close to being a struggle for God. And remember that this abundant provision, this ability to do far more, it's not actually talking about just the stuff of life. It's not about getting nicer cars, nicer clothes, better careers. If Santa doesn't bring you what you want for Christmas in a couple months, well, God isn't your plan B. Paul's praising God for his ability to provide far more abundantly beyond what they could ask or think for their greatest need, their spiritual life. What's most pressing is often what's perhaps temporary and not necessary. We need spiritual help, and God gives it. So this section, this doxology begins with a direction to God who's able to answer all of their prayers for spiritual good. And in the second section, it says what should be happening is that he should be receiving all the glory. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory. He's worthy of all glory. Now, uh, For so many of us, glory feels like one of those abstract religious words. It's a, it's a pleasantry like Lord Sabaoth and Ebenezer and uh, you know, even the popular hallelujah. These are words that we say, but they're just kind of like this bowl of chili. They're kind of warming, uh, but they're really unclear as to what they're actually made up of and mean. But we use the word glory a lot. If you think about it, we, we, we speak of desires to glorify God, give glory to God, do things for His glory. Uh, we sing to Him as the King of glory. We long for Him to be glorified and even hope to someday join Him in glory. So what's glory? What is it? Well, it's translated from, uh, and if we were in Hebrew, it would be translated from the word kavod in, in Greek, as I mentioned earlier, doxa. And glory refers to sort of the weightiness of his power and the honor that flows from his presence. Psalm 24 asks and answers, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Like, like a mighty king coming out to the battle, surrounded by all his, his chariots and his horses and his men, the full force of his kingdom, that's a sense of what comes from beholding God. You look across the battlefield and you think, oh my goodness, when that power is against you, the threat is great. When that power is for you, nothing against you can prevail. So God's glory, it's, it's like the sum of his attributes, the greatness and the worth of his being. And so so to give him the glory then is to return to him the praise for that glory. He doesn't need more glory, but the only appropriate response to his glory is for it to be glorified, for it to be seen for what it is and and to be responded to with all praise and honor. And that's what we call worship. Worship is giving to God what he deserves and, and all our honor and praise glorifying him. And if Paul's readers had 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 missed his utter passion for God's greatness in these first three chapters, Paul is not letting them move on until they hear him say it clearly, God is worthy of all glory. So how can we do that? How, how can we, with Paul, say with all of our hearts, to him be the glory? Well, how can we be among those who see this tremendous king go out to battle with all his power and might and, and make sure that we're on his side? Uh, most, well... The first way we could do that is just to look to Him and behold His glory. You, you can't appreciate what you don't see. One of the, the greatest things that perhaps is being lost in our current age of distraction, of mass media, of social media, is, is really just the wonder of amazement. that We've seen it all, and we only have two seconds to, to check it out, and then we, we keep scrolling in hopes of something better coming next. And friends, when was the last time you really stopped and were amazed by God? I'm not talking about just that that five-minute quiet time where you, you read a verse and, and get an application for your day uh, and, and move on. But I'm talking about being awestruck. I'm talking about you can't get out of your chair because you're caught up in wonder for who God is. And these verses... Paul is giving voice to his praise, to worship, to him be the glory. But have you seen his glory? As the people of God, we're not just after awareness, but amazement. We aren't after less than awareness. We want to know the truth. We want to see the truth. We want to know who God is. And then as we behold it, we want to glorify him for it, to be amazed. So again, friend, are you amazed by God? If not, maybe, maybe the problem isn't with his attributes, but with your attention. In John chapter 1, uh, John tells us, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side, but he, Jesus, has made him known. And if you want to see God, if you want to see his glory, if you want to be amazed, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Study Jesus. Go to your Bibles and see him promised in the Old Testament right from the beginning. Read about his life and work in the Gospels. Come to see how the apostles saw him fulfilling all the prophecy in the epistles. And join John in Revelation and anticipate his triumphant return one day to bring the end of the beginning as he leads his people into everlasting life. As Paul says in chapter One here of Ephesians, in him also you, when you heard the Word of truth, the Gospel of your salvation, and beloved in him, you were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. when you when you heard the Gospel, when you learned about Jesus, what he had done for you, when you looked at that, you were sealed to his glory. So you want to see glory? You want to be amazed by glory? Experience glory? Well, get get in on the gospel that Paul's been talking about in those first three chapters. Turn, Turn away from worthless idols in your life. Stop seeking to be made clean by dirty solutions. Stop longing for your shame to be removed by anything less than the most honorable thing in the whole universe. To anyone who is watching here who are not followers of Jesus, I want to invite you to look to him. Like the blind man in John chapter 9, receive the healing of sight from Jesus. Come confessing your blindness, your inability to see his glory, your lack of amazement, and he will be your Savior. Your eyes will be opened to see him for who he is. And to you, my friends who who are followers of Jesus, don't forsake your first love. Have you allowed your your gaze to move from Christ, uh, from the eternal life that he has won for you, the hope you have in him? You started to look for other things, seeing satisfaction in other things, looking to be acknowledged for your spiritual maturity rather than what the Spirit is doing in you. Too many of us are are trying to do spiritual stuff before we stop and let the Spirit open our eyes to the Savior. Friends, we, we have to adore before we can rightly act. Before you get your driver's license, you should get your eyes checked. Make sure that you can see the road that you're about to drive on. Only a reckless fool would get behind the wheel of a car when he knows he's blind. And yet, for some reason, we do that with our spirituality. We try and get really busy with with living for God without first seeing Him for who He is. So let's look to Him. Let's behold His glory. And what we'll find when, when we do that, when we behold the glory and the truth of who God is, is we're going to find our lives changing into his image. This is what theologian G.K. Beale, uh, he says it this way, when you revere, uh, or what you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Uh, We're imaging creatures. Whatever we fix our gaze upon, we start to resemble. And if you behold God's glory, you will find your entire life begins to give God the honor and praise he is due we'll find that our lifestyle is becoming one of worship, of giving glory to God. And that's why I call this section a lifestyle of worship. Here in Paul's doxology, when he ascribes to the Lord glory, when he says to Him be the glory, we want that to mark our very lives as Christians. No matter how accustomed we are to thinking of worship as just a time during a church service, worship is much more than that. An entire service should be a worship, a worship service, as we're, as we're drawn in to see God's glory and rejoice in it through every element of whatever service goes on. The music is an important part of that, but it's just a part. A worship service is to be simply a weekly orienting point in our lifestyle of worship. Don't you remember Paul's call to the Corinthians uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God. what What I'm getting at here is that a true lifestyle of worship looks like gazing upon and being amazed by God so much that every word or deed of our days turns back to him as glory that he is due. We're not about living a Christian life that's all about worship services and never serving with worship. What parent would would feel loved by a child that never did what they asked, never acknowledged what they even spoke about, never came around for a conversation, but then once a week threw a big dinner party for them? That parent would be offended. Who are you to throw me a party when your whole life says you, you don't even care anything for me? God says this to his rebellious people in, in Amos chapter 5, if you flip back there. He says, I hate and I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you will offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. In the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Friends, that was God speaking to his people, but he was not honored by them. He was not honored, and he's not honored by us, by our token uh, attendance. We don't just check a box in our spiritual to-do list by showing up at a church gathering, as, as great as those are. But there's hope. As we look to God and see that he's able and he's at work within us, we can give him the glory throughout our life. And did you notice part of Paul's praise to the Lord was that he is the one, that's, is that his power that's at work within us? As Paul turned to worship in his doxology, he reminds the Ephesians of how greatly beyond God can do more than we ask or think. And he reminds the Ephesians that his power, God's power, is at work within us. But how are we going to live this lifestyle of worship? How are we going to honor God by conforming to his will in all things? How is it that we're going to behold him and truly see him and become more like him in his glory? By his power. He is the one who made us alive when we were dead. We can see that in Ephesians 2, verse 1. And he is the one who's prepared good works for us to walk in. And that's what we see in in, in chapter 2, verse 10. He made us good in Christ. and He's ready to lead us in the good life, the lifestyle of worship that's for our good by his power. Have you grown content with sin? Have you started to think that those things in your closet that are a little too dirty to be cleaned? Are there you to believe that the enemy uh, is accusing you and that you're too broken to be used by God? Friend, his power is able to do far more than you could ask or think. And it's at work within you. So let's look to him. Let's trust him that in our worship, he will be at work within us to make every day infused with a lifestyle of worship to our king. And now let's move to our second heading, because this life that sees God as worthy of worship and experiences that as a lifestyle of worship will naturally lead to declaring that worship. And that's why we call it a lifetime of witness. That's our second heading, a lifetime of witness. We heard a lifestyle of worship and now a lifetime of witness. Where, where, Where am I seeing witness? at work in these verses. Where's that? Well, well, here we see Paul, and he's drawing the readers into seeing the church as the place where God's glory is on display and made known to the world. When we embrace that as our identity, that we are worshipers, those beholding God's glory and seeing it taking root in our daily lives, we're going to be giving him the glory together as the church that exists now to fill the earth with his glory. Uh, One nuance here in this uh, doxology that's not as easy to pick up in English, but it's there, uh, is that in the prayer there from verses 14 to 19, it's written in in the emphasis being the first person, singular. I, Paul, I'm praying for you, singular individuals. But here in the doxology, Paul switches uh, the the pronoun from first person, uh, singular, to a, collective we, plural. Notice that in verse 20, and not to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, to the power at work within us. Paul's pointing the reader to see the corporate nature of this abundant doing by God of his will. He makes that explicit in verse 21, when, it, when he says that the glory, him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. I think it's pretty clear uh, from the context of Ephesians that that Paul's not talking about two places where God is to be glorified here. He's not talking about that he gets some glory in the church and that in Christ Jesus he gets some other glory. No, the whole idea of Ephesians is that Christ is the cornerstone of the church and that that Christ and the church are intricately connected. Uh, And so at the beginning of chapter 2, he had said that we were raised together with Christ. And later in chapter 2, we're reminded that although at one time we were separated from Christ, in Christ, those who are far off have been brought near. Chapter 2, verse 20, we the church are are members of the household of God, again, the cornerstone of which is Christ. And then chapter 3 is just kind of moving along with this line of thought and saying that the eternal purposes of God, his plan for the ages, it's being realized in Christ Jesus and it's now being made known to the church. And in chapter 5, later on, it's going to, in his words to husbands and wives, Paul presents the reality that the relationship between Christ and the church, it's so intimate that it's like marriage, or rather, marriage is like Christ in the church. So what Paul is saying now in this verse is, is when he's saying, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, what he's saying is something like the church, which is built on Christ and makes him known, is the current place on earth that is receiving glory in Christ. And that ought to completely blow us away. Seriously? The church is God's plan for making Christ known in this world? The church is where the, the weight of God's power and his honor is to be felt by the watching world? Yes, yes. Right now, God's glory is not on display through human wisdom. It's on display through the folly of the cross. And and as one author wrote reflecting on wonder when she was writing about Ephesians, a motley crew of racist, sin-sick spiritual zombies are now one body under Christ. And that's exactly what God wants the world to see. By bringing those who are dead spiritually to life together, putting them together under Christ, we realize what is most amazing about God is His love and grace and power to save. Do we get that? I mean, do, I mean do, do we really get that? That It's not about how loud we sing, how perfect our music is, how comfortable our surroundings are, how good we look. God gets the glory through, not through our appearances uh, of human excellence, but by our announcing of His foolishness. If we join Paul in being passionate about the worship of God, trusting in his power to work within us, realizing that he has chosen to put his glory on display in the message the church has to proclaim, well, brothers and sisters, he's going to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. As we declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, the Lord is going to bring them near by the blood of the cross. And as we, the church, you, CBC, as you make known his deeds among the people, proclaiming that his name is exalted, the Lord is going to break down the dividing walls of hostility and he's going to establish one new man in Christ. You see, the church is the place where anyone can be reconciled to God. So therefore, we must go to everyone with his message of peace. We grow in our reach, and our witness, when we realize that the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege, it's for everyone, and that's why we go. We've tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, and we want all the families of the earth to be included in this spiritual family. We go to our friends, we go to our family, we go to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to the nations around the world, and with confidence, seek to put God's glory on display to them through the church at Redeemer, uh, we live out this passion to glorify Christ in the church by seeking to have a church that has a culture of discipleship. We want to be helping those all around us imitate Christ, to behold Him, and to look more like Him. We do this through the, the church corporately, through church planting, trying to see new gatherings of believers formed in new places to make disciples there, like Beirut or Kuwait or South India. But whether individually or corporately, Our confidence is in what the psalmist says in Psalm 22, that all the ends of the earth will remember him and turn to the Lord, and all the families, the nations are going to worship before him. All the nations shall worship. The the worship, the glory of Jesus, it's going to be worldwide. The lifestyle that that we talked about, that lifestyle of worship, it's going to be necessarily uh, the basis of this lifetime of witness, telling of the gospel pointing others to Christ, gathering them into the church, and giving Christ the glory. So we have a lifestyle of worship, and we're going to be witnessing for a lifetime, proclaiming with our brothers and sisters in the church, and now a life without end. Now, Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Not some authority, all. He can't be defeated. And elsewhere, that was from Matthew. Elsewhere, Matthew, he says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building his church. Disciples are being made. He has authority to see it done. He's able to do abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine. He's going to continue bringing those who are far off, near by his blood, through the worship and witness of his children, until one day, as Matthew 24 speaks to, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The end will come. Back here in Ephesians, uh, in this doxology, Paul points to that same reality that Jesus was talking about, the end coming. There's some reality that's dawning on the horizon as we look over. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory throughout all generations. That is to say, for the rest of history, as long as there's new generations rising up, may they all be part of the glory that's going to God in the church and in Christ Jesus. And, and that's why we witness so that the next generations will know. And then Paul adds, forever and ever. Amen. And that's that's no meaningless tag on I don't know about you, but to me, there's, there's nothing more sobering than time spent thinking about eternity. Eternity. Nothing sort of quiets the frustration of a long day, than realizing how little of what bothered really matters for eternity. Nothing stills the murmurs and temptations uh, quicker than remembering how silly sin is. It's a temporary pleasure in light of eternity psalmist, uh, he meditates on the same idea. And he writes, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. Our lives are just grass, flowers. We come for a season, and then we're gone. And not even the place we were remembers we were there. Our moment in time is a short one. It's passing. It's passing. But then the psalmist directs our minds to eternity, and he speaks with confidence that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear Him. Those who fear the Lord in this life, who trust in Christ, have no fear of eternity, because we know that His love will be there forever and ever. This idea of of time actually weighs pretty heavily here in Paul's writing in Ephesians. He reminds the readers that God had a plan for them from before the beginning of time in chapter 1, verse 4. And he reminds the readers uh, that their time is limited in chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, when he says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. But here in the middle of the book, he's reminding them about something different about time this idea of eternity, that what is to come will be forever and ever. There's a day coming that will be the fullness of time that that he mentions in chapter 1, verse 10, the day of redemption that he talks about in in chapter 4, verse 30, the day when we're not only going to be tasting the saving grace of Christ by faith, but we're going to be seeing him and all the authority and power and dominion that has been given to him by God, not only for this age, this is chapter one, verse twenty-one. But in the age to come, well, friends, this lifestyle of worship, this lifetime of witness, it's going to culminate in a life without end, where we, along with the saints in this church and in His church throughout all generations, we're going to be led by our Savior to streams of living water, to never thirst or want again, to truly see the glory of Christ in the face, or the glory of God in the face of Christ. And on that day and forevermore, we will rejoice in his love. You know, one, one song that we sing here in Dubai uh, says this, He shall reign in glory, crowned with grace and might, will bless his name and praise our sovereign king. He will reign forever with his chosen bride, and the earth shall sing that Jesus is the king. So CBC, as we just bring this into a close, I hope that you're encouraged by this doxology of Paul here in Ephesians 3, that, that, that God is able, that he is worthy of our worship, our life. He's worthy of our lifestyle of worship, constantly giving glory to his name, experiencing the weight of his presence and power in returning back to him praise. And that that, that overflows from us. Uh, to a community of praise where we're gathering with people from so many different places in the church. CBC, I know you're a place like that, uh, where, where everyone is welcome to see the truth and to behold it, to repent of their sins and to declare Christ's glory. I'm so glad that that's still who you are. And we know that these efforts are not in vain and that our Savior is sure that he has risen from the dead, and one day when we die or he comes back, he will take us to life without end. I hope that these words of this doxology are encouragement for you now and forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we ask that now even through this imperfect medium of video, that my brothers and sisters there in Texas would be edified uh, Lord, that they would be um, nourished in their spirit as they hear not only just my words, but Father, more so that they would have been hearing your words from your servant Paul in this book of Ephesians. Father, would you do what this these verses prayed for? Would you do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think It is more than we could ask or think to carry us into eternity by the power of your glory that you have manifested in Christ. And yet, Lord, we're asking and we're seeking and we're knocking. And so, Father, give us the joy of full salvation. And may now in this lifetime that we have, would we worship you and would we witness to your glory as we sing your praise to the nations around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.